Mr. Christian, yeah. kindly give me an explanation. What was the sea with the water? Williams has been drinking seawater, sir. I was giving him some fresh water. I'm afraid he'll die without it. You'll give no one water without my permission. Take that ladle below. Yes, sir. on me again. Hello, welcome to episode 25 of Film Gold. And this is a discussion about Mutiny on the Bounty the 1962 version starring Marlon Brando, Trevor Howard and Richard Harris. This is just a quick intro because this is another from the archives of my guest appearances on film podcasts. This was recorded in 2020 and is once again a collaboration with Scott Phipps and there's also Stephen Byford in there who was in with Scott for episode 13 of this podcast about Sleuth. Scott currently has, I believe, four podcasts and a chart show the main three podcasts he runs are The Stinking Paws, which is um, what you're going to hear now. We originally recorded this for Stinky Paws. Real Britannia, which he does with Stephen, which is a very British podcast about very British movies. Rainbow Valley, which uh, is the one where I first discovered him. That's all about the 60s. And then he also contributes to the Talking Pictures TV podcast, which is linked to the TV channel of the same name in England. And recently Scott has started the Rainbow Valley Chart Show, which I believe is on Mixcloud. It'll all be in the show notes, of course. So yes, this uh, discussion is focused on the 1962 version of the story, as I said, of uh, HMS Bounty. And that was the middle version of the main three film versions, which spanned from 1935 to 1984. But apparently, as you'll hear, there were other versions as well. It's obviously a very compelling story of mutiny, of course, an apparently authoritarian rule, and I suppose also really the tension of being at sea for long stretches of time, especially living in cramped and uncomfortable quarters, as the common seamen did, while the officers obviously had much better quarters and their own rooms. A bit similar to the Titanic, really, in that you've got people in very different conditions, essentially living close to each other, but with that bit of distance between them. And, of course, there were class elements as well. The end of the real story, the aftermath of the mutiny, is mysterious as well in terms of the details and the fact of different accounts of what happened. So that's ripe for different film adaptations as well. We talk, of course, about Marlon Brando and what he got up to during the making of this film. It's funny, actually, that the two films that really made him, quote, box office poison were One-Eyed Jacks and uh, this film. And both of them involved him being close to beaches, so... We wonder whether he sat on the beach in Tahiti waiting for the right wave, which is a famous story from uh, when he was making One-Eyed Jacks and ended up being the director, of course. If you're interested in Marlon Brando, I did a two-parter with David Ghosty Wills, episodes 11 and 12. So here's the show. I think it went out late 2020, but I remember us recording it in the summer, I think, or the autumn. I haven't listened back to it in its entirety, but I remember there are some reminiscences about watching films on video as kids and the primitive equipment we had to use then. 
And I think we also speculated towards the end of the conversation on what could be done with a bounty story in the future because it's clearly got legs, sea legs, if you will. I'll just say before I finish this intro that if you think Captain Bly was just a tyrant who deserved to have a mutiny against him, you might feel differently after you hear this. And we bring a fair bit of evidence to support what might be a more truthful portrait of Captain William Bly. I'll be back soon with this podcast, probably for the audio version of Sorcerer with Luke Thompson. We put it out on video a few months ago and it was a very freewheeling and quite rambling conversation. So I'm going to apply the scissors to it and put out a slightly different version of it. So see you soon and I now leave you in the capable hands of Scott Phipps with myself and Stephen on Stinking Paws. Enjoy. Well sounds Scotty. Sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Good morning, it's the Stinking Paws podcast, Scott here as usual. I'm joined by two mutinous dogs this morning, Anthony and Stephen, good morning. Hello, how's it going? The episode that very nearly wasn't, I think we're going to describe this as, this is attempt number two to record, it feels like attempt number 22. Yeah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> we Not dissimilar to the production of the film. It's a long drawn out process. Yeah. <laughs> long drawn out process today. <laughs> uh, fingers crossed everything's working. We've just had technical issues. People trying to break their way through to Stephen's flat from next door when we tried recording a couple of That's days right, yeah. ago. They're trying to steal his breadfruit, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope that's not a euphemism. No. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen's breadfruit is legendary in York, ladies and gentlemen. Isn't it? Now, as you may or may not know, Stephen is my co-host on a little thing we do called the Real Britannia podcast, which is all about British movies. And today's movie could quite easily fall into that wheelhouse, mate. It could, but um, we, we decided to jump ship. We did. Um, but the the um, metaphors are going to be fly thick and fast today, aren't they? It's, it's oh, going to just... <laughs> Um, and yes, so we're bringing this to the um, the, the stinking paws audience mm. um, to, to give them um, a taste of what the discussions um, can be um, on the real Britannia, especially when we have a particular third. Um, third wheel third sail third, third, sail, third sail there we go this is going to be good today Very I can good. tell and it's Anthony the host of Glass Onion on, on John Lennon who has been a guest on Stinking Paws previously haven't you mate but also Real Britannia a few times yeah definitely yeah, yeah four so, or five oh, it's um, your choice today as well so 
the main reason I think you chose it is A, it's one of your favourite movies B, it stars mm. Brando, I believe is your favourite actor is, is, am I right in saying that? Yeah, he's probably the probably the along with John Lennon obviously who's the subject of my podcast probably the cultural uh, I don't know I use the word hero a little bit lightly but uh, touchstone you know, cultural mm. yeah, cultural figure that I find absolutely fascinating and um yeah, I hate, hate to beat the same drum, but this is one of, another one of those childhood films uh, that it's very hard to have an objective view about it because it's so sort of entrenched. You know, yeah. my sisters and my parents, we as a family, we used to watch this just over and over again. And I'm not even sure if we thought it was a great film then, but you know, is it strange how things do that? Yeah, I think me and Stephen have had the conversation before where mm. there's films that are generally perceived by people to be classics and are worthy of re-watching and, you know, you can understand why people go back to them again and again. But then everybody's got one, two, possibly three movies that are just outside of that little Venn diagram that mm. you will watch again and again because it'll click with you memory-wise, Stephen. Isn't that right? I think mine, for some reason, is probably one of the worst musicals ever made, which is Paint Your Wagon. <laughs> yeah, there certainly is, you know, these touchstones from uh, particularly childhood or, or, you know, your early experiences in life where they they take you back and a lot of what we do on the Real Britannia is, is films that aren't objectively good films but films that we enjoy, particularly the, the, the cliched, you know, Rainy Bank Holiday films. <laughs> How many times have um, we said that on the, on the show, yeah, the Rainy Bank Holiday movie? You know, a cliche wouldn't be a cliche <laughs> if it wasn't true and we, we have have those go-tos that you want to go you know go and watch when if you can't decide what else to watch or you just fancy revisiting or there are some films that are even ones that you know when you're not actually feeling not very well you just stick on because it's, yeah. it's almost like comfort food to just definitely uh, watch That's it. so so you know there, there are those films that might not be objectively um, great and and are open to criticism from less sort of kindly eyes or ones that are, are less um, bought into it, you know, it's, it's like a family dog, you know, that might be scruffy and one-eyed and, and you know, leaks <laughs> a bit on the carpet and that kind of stuff, but you still, got, still yeah, love it and very... replace it for anything else, you know. Yeah, I suppose you've got an unconvincing British accent, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. no, the other, Some I think people the other have thing... told me I have, yeah. So. <laughs> um, I think the other thing is the seafaring thing, and uh, Jaws is another one of my obsessive films, objectively considered a really good film, but there's something about the sea and the ocean that fascinates me as well, so that's oh, another right, reason. Lots of it all ties together to make the ultimate movie for you, basically. It's got Brando, it's, yeah. got, it's got sea, seawater. <laughs> that's yeah. it. We all have bad the, British accents. Uh, yeah. Bad British accents. I mean, I mean we, we just used to, you know, I don't know if you did the same, you guys, but we had a limited number of films on VHS and we just watched them to death. Yeah. We watched them as a family. I think that's another big thing. Yeah, I, That people don't I do that, it anymore. Yeah. I had that with my, my household because um, yeah. we were limited. But I think Scott was a bit different because of his, um, <laughs> his family having access to all the latest films, um, you know, coming through the door oh, um, yes. for, for a different reason. We- so there was uh, always new films to watch, I think, in, in Scott's household. That was the thing. Classic movies weren't really watched because we had access to... Um, things that weren't even released at the time you know because of that mm. that window between america releasing a movie and, and us could be up to a year sometimes couldn't it do you remember that yeah yeah, yeah. you know well, we're talking early 80s i remember et took six to eight months or something to come over but we had a copy pretty much immediately you know well, the, the, i think we, the other thing i mean we, we've laughed um 
Is there a name for those those terrible early VHS? Is it Top Loader? Is that what you call them? Yeah, yeah Top Loader, yeah. yeah. We had a Top you know, Loader. You, you stick them in and then you have to wait. It feels like you're waiting half an hour. But no one would bother anymore for the, for the thing to very, very slowly go into the machine and start is, playing. Is, oh, yes. If the spring went, you used to have to put something weighty on top of <laughs> it brick. to keep the top, top down, yeah. <laughs> but there's something, there's something about that that gives you, I don't know, it makes you appreciate it a bit more. A bit like vinyl, it. isn't it? And, you know what I mean? Bit, yeah, a bit like yeah, putting a classic album It's the same on. as if you go and put, put, the, put the video in and find out that the previous person hasn't rewound it. So you have to, you yeah. have to sit there for, for two minutes while it rewinds, and that builds the anticipation the as well. The longest two minutes of your life when you're about 12 years old, isn't it, waiting well, for the video to rewind? A bit like a ZX Spectrum trying to load a game. Yeah. Yeah. From a tip. Well, also, yeah. we have a bit of a family joke. That my, my mum would occasionally accidentally record episodes of Neighbours or Coronation Street in the middle of a classic film. <laughs> <laughs> See, we Break all had our own. Slightly. We had our own blank tapes, you know, their names on it, you know. But yeah, you would. You'd sneak over and nick your brother's one and say, "Now it's going to tape over there." Yeah. You know? <laughs> we had um, we had um, a series of blank VHSs that had been recorded onto, and they all had the, from the little stickers that you got with the things that you had oh, numbers yeah, in there, so you yeah. could put on the front of them on the spines what number tape it was mm. and then we had a, a little book that was same size as like a, a pocket diary that had the, what was on the actual tapes in there on a different page for each number um, it written on and then crossed out and then written on or rubbed out in pencil yeah. or whatever so yes it was all catalogued in my, my father was a wow. bit more um, of that mind as well with lists I think which is where I got it from Great so day, yes it's very recorded yeah I know we're sort of drifting onto like 80s video habits here but do you remember those plastic cases that people would have that made them look like expensive books <laughs> you, you could, you could yes. disguise them on your shelf so it looked like part of this extensive library that you got but really they were cheap plastic like video cases that had like that's, lever that's effect that's what me and you need to do now as a background behind us when we're on zoom calls in this oh. current climate we need to make it look like we've got an expensive library but actually we, it's full of videos dodgy VHS's yeah, yeah. oh yeah. yeah I remember all that and, and this is not a typical you know 80s generation movie this isn't you know this no, isn't no. a John Hughes movie or you know an Arnold Schwarzenegger or anything like that but as you say it's it's personal to you Anthony which is why you brought it mm. to the table and and that's what we like because then we're going to inject a bit of passion into this hopefully or one of one of the three of us is going to inject a bit of passion into this movie <laughs> and and it'll be great to hear why because Everybody, as we say, has their own thoughts, their own particular comfort movies. I mean, Paul, my co-host on this show, my regular co-host, his bizarre one that he always turns to is iRobot, starring Will Smith. Mm. Now, how obscure mm. is that? You know, for me, it might be it's the, the King Kong remake, for some reason. If it, like you said, if you're ever stuck... Which one, though? I like the 1976 one, actually. I like all that versions. That one's got another tangent. But. Yeah. <laughs> Anything to do with giant monkeys, apparently. People take the piss out of me. Or talking monkeys, because I love the Planet of the Apes series, and I love every single version of King Kong that's ever been made. Um. <laughs> we well, know that ape at the beginning of... Yes, and Clyde, yes. <laughs> you know that ape at the beginning of 2001? Uh, I, I think you've interviewed him, haven't you? Oh, yeah. I wasn't going to mention it, <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Richter. See, the, yeah, the conversation always turns back to people in monkey suits on this film. We're used to, anyway. <laughs> well, I always work it to the Beatles, but I'll try not to. So. Uh, are there any Beatles connections in this? We're talking 1962. Uh, oh, let's well, let's find out. Came out. Yeah. 
Yeah, let, <laughs> let's find out. I'll tell you what. Some of these sailors must have had a hard day's night. Oh, here we well, go. They were He's so off. poor they used to eat breadfruit, you know, back in Liverpool. Because <laughs> <laughs> Liverpool's a port, so, you know, it was coming in regularly. I'm sure on the ship there was plenty of Beatles, so. Yeah, well. yeah, Actually, I just found a connection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Tahitian extra. I was going to mention this later, but they, one of the production problems was that the Tahitian extras used to eat beetle nuts. Uh, oh, well done. Well done. And so, they, so their teeth were black. <laughs> and, uh, so they had to fly in. They flew in 5,000 temporary dentures from the USA. <gasps> but, but the extras, you put them on, and they were so fascinated by it that they, they'd just go off. They had mirrors as well on the island. Yeah. They'd go off and just admire themselves for hours. And run off with teeth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of silly stories and a lot of fascinating trivia associated with this movie. As I found out after watching it, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's find the trailer or we'll find some dialogue. We'll find some of that interesting accent that Marlon Brando has got throughout this movie, perhaps. We'll be back mm. after this. It's Mutiny on the Bounty, 1962. On December 23rd, 1787, His Majesty's ship Bounty sailed from England bound for the South Seas. En route, there began a fantastic series of historical events as men, driven to desperation, plunged into the unknown. A series of events that culminated in the most famous mutiny in history. The dramatic story of that mutiny has, for more than a century, excited the imagination of men, women, and children the world over. From initial conception to completion, Mutiny on the Bounty has been an unprecedented and exciting adventure in the history of picture-making. The Bounty herself, built in historic shipyards in Lunenburg, Nova Scotia. First ship ever to be built from the keel up, especially for a motion picture. Then, across the world, a truly global project. The actual locales, the islands of Tahiti and Pitcairn. Tahiti. For generations, the dream island of the Western world. A land of easy-going, fun-loving people. A land that has always represented escape from civilization. A land where there is no time, no tomorrow, only today. Now Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer crystallizes the lure of adventure that beckons from beyond the horizon in one of the most extraordinary motion pictures ever made. Like all great motion pictures, Mutiny on the Bounty is a story of people. You're going too lightly, Quintal. A story of provocative and colorful characters brought to life by unforgettable star personalities. Marlon Brando is Fletcher Christian, an officer and a gentleman, yet a man among men. service, I have never met an officer who inflicted punishment upon men with such incredible relish. Trevor Howard is the infamous Captain Bly, relentless and cruel. Mr. Christian! Richard Harris portrays the reckless John Mills. The men are armed, Mr. Christian! And there is Tarita, 
alluring daughter of an exotic land. Fletcher Christian is, is my name. Is my name? <laughs> no, no, no. Fletcher. No, no. Fletcher. It is a matter of supernatural indifference to me whether you contaminate the natives or the natives contaminate you. I have but one concern. Our mission, let any one of you provoke an incident which endangers it, and I shall cause that man to curse his mother for giving him birth. You remarkable pig. You can thank whatever pig god you pray to that you haven't quite turned me into a murderer. Mutiny on the Bounty thrills with moments that will live forever in your memory. Mutiny on the Bounty, released in the UK the 19th of November 1962. Directed by Lewis Milestone and Carol Reed, which we will be talking about here. Starring, of course, Marlon Brando, Trevor Howard, Richard Harris, Hugh Griffith, Richard Hyden, Tarita, Percy Herbert, Duncan Lamont, Gordon Jackson. It could have been a real Britannia movie, but it's not. It's a stinking paws movie. It's Anthony's choice. Anthony, could you give us the synopsis, please, mate? Absolutely, yeah. In 1787, British ship Bounty leaves Portsmouth to bring a cargo of breadfruit from Tahiti. But the savage onboard conditions imposed by Captain Bly trigger a mutiny led by officer Fletcher Christian. Um, it's Bly's first command. It's soon apparent that he is happy to hand out severe punishments for the most minor infraction. The welfare of his men is also not of primary concern to him. All this not only puts him in conflict with the seaman, but with his first lieutenant, Fletcher Christian. It's kind of a mixture of the two. Yeah. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> that's that summed it up. I mean, it's it's quite a familiar story to people of our generation. Mm. Yeah, I, I would say it's probably not. So it's not something that's taught in schools today, is it? I don't think. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I don't think it was considered a major event for a long time. It's one of those things that probably through, I guess, the books that came out before these films. But obviously, it's an amazing. I guess we'll talk about the real story later. But it's mm. an amazing story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's you not know. only a you know the, the story of the mutiny. It's the survival story and yeah, how misrepresented and misunderstood Captain Bly is in a lot of these movies as well. Yeah, that's I right. That, I think that the you know the the fame of the story was initially you know straight away when it happened. It was absolutely to do with Bly from the way that he survived. Um, with mm. you know the seamanship and and etc. Yeah, and um, he was actually you know almost a hero figure. Then it went into obscurity and and only came back when the triptych of um, novels were written you know earlier in the 20th century, which were then developed into the, the you know the films that we um, know, which this is a, a, a remake of. Mm. So absolutely, I, I think for there was. Hundred years or more, where it was, it was basically in obscurity, and and now the mutiny and bounty more has, you know, people have heard of the mutiny and bounty, but knowing any details about it, I think it is more, you know, from the films if they do know the films, but otherwise they've got no real idea about what 
what it was all about anyway. Yes. Yeah. Nowadays, yeah. it's 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 been lost in that it's just a touchstone reference rather than the understanding, as revealed recently by the president of the United States, Donald Trump has made a reference to it and completely turning around the actual implications of, of mutiny the bounty and right. um, not realizing he was positioning himself as being the the, the villain of the piece. Really. Right. Oh, really? What did he say the then? Point. What did he say uh, then? Did he refer himself to it, Fletcher Christian was, or something? It, it was it, no. It was it was. He was saying about the the meeting and bounty and, and make, making reference to the um, the governors of various states, the democratic governors who were uh, rebelling against the um, the attempt to um, reduce any kind of lockdown and and any kind of fight against the coronavirus. Their joint action to try and resist him. He was he was um, describing he described that as like a mutiny on the bounty and not realizing that they needed their captain and and all this kind of stuff. And <laughs> uh, position himself as blind but not realizing that in the public consciousness of those that do know of the story, as far as the films go, um mm. that he was very much the villain of the piece was was blind. <laughs> so um the actual cultural reference point for mutiny on the bounty does seem to have have been lost on some people. Well, can just yeah. say just say off the bat that that for people who want to know the real story, definitely the most realistic is the third version of the story. Isn't yes, it? The, the, the yeah. bounty from nineteen. Well, is it the third version? Because there's five oh, different yeah. of this, isn't right, there? Right. I mean, the, the, everybody remembers the the Charles Lawton, Clark Gable. They remember this, and they remember the Andy Hopkins, Mel Gibson. But wasn't there an Errol Flynn version and another as well? There was two two of us, yeah. yeah. Um, right. I think they were both before before the Clark Gable one. Before I think the first one, yeah. Um, well, yeah. Right, okay. I think one of them was very short because of filmmaker at the time. It was all short films, and mm. um, I think these are the, the the three that people are talking about. Yeah. The ones, yeah. We we'll, we'll, um, we'll refer to these as based the upon three, the books, and then attempts at remakes of the previous ones that mm. were based on the books, sort yeah. of thing, rather than those yeah. originals. But yeah, I mean the books themselves aren't necessarily. Um, so to be taken as has been the true story. It's a an, an account. It's a fictionalized account, isn't it? So, yeah. well, for um, the, for the sake of this podcast, we'll, we'll just refer to the big three. I think rather yeah. than the two that you know we're not that aware of or a less seen, lesser seen. So, obviously, yes, nineteen sixty two. It's a re- it's a rehash. It's a readaptation. I mean, how familiar are we with? The three versions. Let's let's turn to Anthony first because I know this is your favourite version. But then, knowing you, you go and you seek out everything that you know. You devour all information about any movie that you know, <laughs> grabs you with a passion. And I know that you you have seen the Anthony Hopkins one several times because you like that as well. I'm aware. Mm. But what about the earlier one? You know, the 30s one with Clark Gable. I don't know it so well. Yeah. No. Um, I'm not the world's biggest Clark Gable fan. You know, I'm I'm open to, to that being changed. But um, I would say, yeah, this version is the one that's sort of closest to my heart. But I did actually, years ago, me and a couple of friends, we watched all three and we decided the best combination was Brando's Christian, mm. perhaps taking it a bit more seriously than he did this time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, But definitely Anthony Hopkins' play, I thought, is spectacular. Mm-hmm. And Mel Gibson was all right as well. So I'm very familiar with the... This the one we talk about today in the 1984 version, definitely. First one, tell me about the first one because I'm not so familiar with it. I think it's probably my favourite of the three. Right. Uh, but then that all goes back to my love of classic Hollywood, and I think it's the version I saw first. It is. Thinking about it, I think. Do you know what? I saw this in a very bizarre order. I think I saw that first. Then I saw the 80s one. Then I saw this version. 
That makes a difference as well, though, doesn't it? It does, and they've all got their own merits. Um, Mm. They've all got something, you know, remarkable about them. They all tell the story in a slightly different way. Yes. You know, mainly influenced by budget, a lot of it as well. You know, we could talk about a potential future, you know, adaptation of the novel and how that would look in this age of CGI and, and, you know, young Hollywood actors and stuff like that. But Mm. this version I've only ever seen three times, two or three times. And to be honest, it's only been very recently. My first watch was only a couple of years ago. Mm, of this one Stephen what about yourself you, your history with the three I think I, I think I've seen them in, in order I think All right, okay, um, okay. my recollection is I think um, the definitely the most recent one the 1980s one uh, with Hopkins and uh, Gibson I don't think I, I saw that until just a few years ago to be perfectly honest mm. um, whereas the, the other two I know I have seen a long time ago my recollection is that um, I, I saw the 1930s one first. So, I mean, as, as Anthony says, that kind of does have a, a bearing upon how you regard the films as well, if you've, um, which ones you've seen first and, and such. Yeah. But, you know, I completely agree that the, there's a, there was both a budgetary and actual technical improvement gradually as the films um, were, were made to allow them to do more and and be more realistic. But there was also a creeping um, attempt to try and be more realistic about the characters and to some extent Mm. be more true to the story, um, Mm -hmm. which is why you you get the more emphasis on certain characters as it progresses, that there's um, characters that are actually quite intrinsic and and important parts of the actual real story that that Mm. aren't in the first one, and then there's some that are added for the for this version that we're reviewing now, but still, mm-hmm. you know, there's some that are missing that are therefore included in the 1980s one. Yeah. But and the different emphasis they also take with regards to the the reasons for why there is a mutiny as well. There's a, an, a, a sort yeah. of, to some extent, a bit of a reassessment, even though even though it's the same to some extent um, through them. Well, it's not quite that it does change over time, but um, definitely. That there's a, a, an attempt to re- do something different with each one. There is there is one unfortunate kind of whopper in the 1984 film, which is that they have Bly wanted to go back around the horn. Yes. Which is total bullshit. And I mean, I think it's a bit unfortunate that they, they went for this realism. They could have found some other reason why they would mutiny. But the idea that Captain Bly would want to go back around the horn... I don't know to punish them to, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I think the, I think one of the versions, perhaps the one we're talking about today, I've lost track a little bit, mm. as Bly going a different route because he wants to circumnavigate the globe to emulate Magellan. I, th- I can't it's, remember which film that is. It's yeah, I think it's this one that is it this one? Yeah, set yeah. out at the beginning that that's you know he makes a failed yeah. attempt to go around the horn, um, and that then wastes time, but also um, you know causes people to die, and it, that scene has been. His yeah. own personal ambition to be, you know, a cert, you know, a, a circumnavigator of the of the globe, which doesn't tie in with, and we will get onto this um, later on. It doesn't right, tie right. into the actual um, facts of the of of the, the matter um, and and realism. But um, yeah, I think that you know this one has you know has that, and the the third one included that. Whereas in mo- in most of the instances, the third one was a bit more was true, truer to facts. 
Um, so it was a yeah. shame they did. Shame they did sort of spoil it a bit with that. I agree. What you're saying. Yeah, but they really. Um, I don't know. They just really captured something. And Mel Gibson's pretty good as well. The only disappointing, the romance with the uh, the king's daughter becomes. I think in that podcast uh, recommended that history by Hollywood, they said it was like love story, but I think it was a bit more like the Blue Lagoon. It was a bit like the Blue Lagoon. <laughs> just becomes a slightly ridiculous. Thing. Other than that, I, mean, I thought the I thought the eight four film, the old film, the other the inconsistency I was going to mention with that is that in the real story, um, the HMS Pandora was the ship that was sent to Tahiti to to basically try and round up the mutineers, and in the old film quite conveniently, Captain Bly captains that. As that well. is <laughs> right. So he reunites with the mutineers and Tahiti. It didn't quite yeah. happen. But, uh, yeah. It's quite funny, you know, I mean, uh, artistic license. Liberties are taken with all versions. Absolutely. And as we've said many times, you know, in 1935, they wouldn't have been expecting people to have VHS recorders and people, the internet and all that kind of thing. You know, it wasn't done for that reason. It was done. You, you went to the movies to be entertained. That's right. Exactly. mate. And, exactly. and yes, who cares if Charles Lawton jumped back on a boat and, you know, immediately went chasing back after him. That's, that's, yeah. what, that's what was expected. As, as you guys are aware, I, I do another podcast called rainbow Valley. And one of the episodes I did was on the making of Cleopatra, mm. which also came out this year, I believe, wasn't it? It's around about this sort of time. It was, yeah. yeah I mean, it came out the next year, I think. I think, yeah, but the but, production on it was years and years in advance, you know. As well. yeah, it started no, in about nineteen forty-eight. <laughs> I think that the the what you you may be getting to, it might be preempting you and, mm-hmm. and stepping on your toes. But nope. um, on, one of the things is that I think the the two thing two films, this uh, and Cleopatra, were linked by the fact that it was big budget historical um, epic telling and it was there was a lot of stories floating around about the fact that the 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 difficulty of getting it shot and the demands of the the stars who were being privy donoration and and delaying things and causing problems on sets and that's the link between the the two which you covered obviously in in your wonderful show thank you of the rainbow valley Mm. and and will we be um cover less well um here (laughs) You've got to remember, right, we're talking 1962, right? So from the mid-50s where television had reared its ugly head and, you know, was a real major force in competing against the movie going public, movie makers had to come up with something spectacular. So you get widescreen, you get stereo sound, cinemascope, all of this came in. And from about 1959 where it really hits the peak with, say, Ben-Hur, you know, everything after that tried to emulate the success of Ben-Hur if they were making a big Hollywood production, an epic. Everything had to be three hours plus. It had to be in cinema scope. It had to have these exotic locations. And in a lot of cases, they fell foul of their own ambition. This particular movie is no exception with technical, technical woes, casting issues... Casting relationships, There's, there are some interesting stories and behind-the-scenes stuff going on throughout this movie, mate, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I'd recommend anyone, obviously, to, to search this out for themselves, mm. but uh, where should we start? Marlon Brando, I guess. <sighs> yeah, but this is probably the main point of, you know, you ch- main reason for you choosing the movie. So. Mm. Well, one of the things that was very interesting is that uh, I first watched this film when I was like 10 or 11. As I said, we used to watch it as a family. Mm. I'd never actually seen any other Brando films. So I didn't know he was American. Ah, right. <laughs> to begin with, then my dad 
put me right and uh, showed me the godfather and everything else and i but it was so funny that it's it's so strange that even at that age i think we all felt that brando was taking the piss out of the film <laughs> we're taking the piss out of us do you know what i mean yeah. even at that young age i just felt that like I, I just had this sense that he wasn't trying to do a good accent. He was just trying to do this ridiculous. <laughs> and I think the line that we always, you know, in this version of the film, the guy starts drinking seawater. Yes. And, and Brando Christian gives him fresh water. Bly kicks the ladle away. And then Brando gives Bly a sort of backhand slap. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, the, the line we always used to laugh at was, um, Williams has been drinking seawater, sir. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> how ridiculous. Um, it, it, but, uh, it still hit home with me that I've only seen this a couple of times, two, three, four times possibly. At the, and the very first line, which I cannot remember, but the, the second Brando opens his mouth, it takes you out of the movie. You, it, yeah, that's it, what I mean. It's a kind of a comedy. I think we always regarded this as a sort of unintentional comedy in a funny <laughs> way. You know, we took it as that. Do you think he was just given instructions on the script to say that, Okay, Brando is this upper class officer, blah blah blah, I mean, and, and he's misinterpreted it somehow. I think Marlon Brando, if I can just go deep for a second, I think he was <laughs> mostly motivated by anger because I've read loads <laughs> right, about okay, him. Yeah. And I think this was just his way of saying, uh, "Can we swear or not?" Saying just yes, fuck off, yeah, fuck off. I'm going to hijack this because I'm Marlon Brando <laughs> and I'm an angry guy. And I, I think he just did it to annoy them. Honestly, wow. okay. um, that that podcast history by Hollywood did this brilliant description of Brando when he appears as a cross between a leprechaun and a superhero. <laughs> yeah, when he turns up in the because yeah. he's got the cape and, and he's carrying a cane and it's just, oh, it's brilliant. I love it. It's actually a funny, funny. There's a couple of parallels with Apocalypse Now. Uh, one of them being Marlon Brando, obviously, but also the fact they got the production got caught in the rainy season. Oh right, and it went it went on and on and on. But Brando. That's what I mean. I, I think he was just trying to give the the establishment as hard a time as possible because, I mean, his fee apparently was $500,000 plus 10% of the gross. And I think that was one of the first times that an actor got, you know, a, a cut of the of the gross. But he also got 5000 a day for every day that the production run over schedule. Oh, this is, we, the, the parallels between about, this and Elizabeth Taylor are frightening, actually. You, yeah, saying this, but yeah, guys, cool. we're talking about five thousand dollars a day in nineteen sixty-two. <laughs> well, we could God, buy a house. I mean, how for much that. is that? Yeah. How much is that now? I don't know. Hundred thousand dollars a day. It's, it's no wonder course, he managed to buy the, the Tahiti Islands. <laughs> there you go. But of course, he, the other parallel with Apocalypse Now is that he would ad lib and he would stall, you know, partly to piss everyone off, partly for the money. It's exactly what he did to Francis Ford Coppola in Apocalypse Now, and it's fascinating. Yeah, you know, yeah. there are other things. I mean, he, he didn't he didn't learn the lines properly, and you, you must have heard of his famous line learning thing, where he'd stick the lines on like dummy cards to the furniture, yes. or he'd even ask a, an actor if he could stick the lines on his forehead. Yes. So if you watch Brando, <laughs> often often you'll see his his eyes just go up because the lines on the forehead of the guy he's talking. To and, uh, oh, I don't know. It's incredible because he, he's he wasn't. Hmm the biggest star in Hollywood at the time, but he was fairly big, wasn't he? I mean, we're, we're talking on the waterfront was 10 years before this, wasn't it? 54, 55? 54, yeah. 54, yeah. You know, we had Guys and Dolls and a few other things in between. And, and am I right in saying that this is the movie that not necessarily killed his career, but led to that 10-year 
sort of fallow period before the Godfather. I yeah, it is, it is commonly seen that way as being the one that sort of po- made him poisonous to work with. Not yeah. not just because of the fact that this film maybe financially didn't um, do what um, they were hoping it was going to do, especially with him taking a, a cut of it, but also the, the his behaviour made it the, the people who who you know decided director wise and, and, and star wise decided that they'd rather just not work with him. So it, it really wasn't you know wasn't until the Godfather, where it, there was some kind of uh, rehabilitation, mm. I think. Yeah, I mean, box office poison is what they always say, isn't it? Yeah, and he became, and I, I think, I think absolutely, this was, this was, you know, this alienated him massively. And uh, you know, I'm, sure, all... I'm sure he would have decided that was everybody else being wrong rather than him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. that type, isn't he? From what you... uh, it's a funny, it's a funny mixture because he was quite deep as well, you know, and he. He got involved in civil rights. I think he did actually want to change the world. He's one of those people, but he couldn't deal with his own life. And he, you know, two alcoholic parents. And uh, yeah, you probably know the story, but, mm. you know, very, very complex person, but just endlessly fascinating. And the thing is, I mean, uh, those films, as you said, between 62 and 72, they're not great, but there's one called Burn, which I'd, uh, Kimado, I think, in Spanish, which I'd recommend. Okay. And that's where he actually premiered this uh, posh accent. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and he considered it one of his best films, but again, it would just, I mean, for for whatever reason, it just, he didn't really have a box office hit, and he made some pretty awful films in that time. Yeah, I think, wasn't there the Western One Eyed Jacks and things like that? Or was that later? I can't remember. But That was before Bounty. That wasn't too bad. I mean, have you seen The Chase, for example? Oh, have long time that? ago. Long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a very interesting one with a, with a, sort of troubled production and you can kind of see <laughs> there's a there's a there's a running theme going through there, yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't that wasn't necessarily his fault i think that was <laughs> you know the script got messed around with and um brando's this sheriff it's it's got a good cast robert redford jane yeah, Fonda, the one. Various yes. other people. I, yeah i know the one but yeah. and you, when you watch it it's like a lot of his films it just seems like a big missed opportunity like this flashes this flashes of the old brando you know because he built such a reputation based on Basically, four films, really. I mean, well, let's think. The Men, Viva Zapata, Streetcar, On the Waterfront. You know, just those four films had given him such a reputation that mm. they, they let him get away with a lot. But in the end, they just wouldn't because... Hollywood know, was, costing, was, Hollywood the was changing. Money. The studio system, this was the beginning of the end for the studio system. This was sort of highlighted by, you know, the, the making of Cleopatra that nearly led to the downfall of Fox at that point, right. you know. And it's not until about five, six years later when we start getting the new bucks in town. You know, you start getting people like your Spielbergs and your Coppolas and all these guys that start making Bonnie and Clyde and, and you know, the wild one. Uh, sorry, the wild bunch and um, Easy Rider. You know, the Easy Rider Raging Bull generation, as you like to refer to it, Anthony. You know, that, yeah. that whole lot creep in and the studio system just collapses almost. And this is the beginning of the end. And the 60s... People sort of sort of say, oh, you know, the, the golden age of Hollywood was over all these big productions. But when you look at some of the massive epics that came out in the 60s, it was a second golden age almost. Because, as I say, you know, we were competing with, with television. And, you know, Lawrence of Arabia was this year. Um, even the musicals were big and they were bold and they were wide. You know, Sound of Music, a couple of years after this, Oliver, West Side Story, they were huge productions. They were made at the expense of some of the more lesser movies, the more creative movies, the more, probably more interesting movies, if truth be told. 
in, mm. in favour of these big overblown blockbusters that when you look into it, quite a few of them turned around and bit the Hollywood studios on the arse. A troubled production. Um, to say the least. To say the least. I mean, t- two directors, which again, similarities with Cleopatra again. Originally, now Stephen, it was Carol Reed, who, yes. famous British director, left for, I've got it here, it says an undisclosed ailment. <laughs> Gallstones, I've got it here. <laughs> Gallstones in inverted commas, yeah. Do we read he between to spend the lines? more time with his family. Yeah, do we do we read time. read between the lines here, guys? You know, <laughs> tr- tr- troubled production is 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 screaming out all you know here. See, I'd I have thought you know when you hear oh. troubled production and, and you know that they built the bounty, they built that ship, didn't they, from scratch? Mm. You think, oh, okay, well that would be the start of it. You know, the the, the boat took two years longer to make than they planned. It didn't. That was the only thing that sort of went to plan was the construction of the bounty itself, wasn't it, I think? That was <laughs> that was commission well, built in Nova Scotia and boom, it was ready, you know. Well, there are a couple of other things, actually. I mean, when they got to Tahiti, the sand, rather than being white sand, was black-powdered lava. Yes. So they had to get tons of white sand flown in. I mean, <laughs> I'd be fascinated to, to, to see the production. I actually got a student, because I'm an English teacher, who actually works on films. And I would, I can't imagine how stressful this kind of thing is when you're talking about these amounts of money and you've got to get, you know, what was I said earlier? Five, 5,000 temporary dentures flown in from America. Incredible, isn't it? What's that John Wayne movie where they flew the sand in and it was radioactive? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, um, and all the, all the cast developed cancer. Oh, yeah, I can't. Uh, oh, I can't remember. It was something. It was. It was a, like a desert western, wasn't it, or something, Stephen? Yeah, yeah. Possibly. And, and basically, what they did, Anthony, they they mm. got this sand flown in, but they flew it in. I might be wrong here, but Stephen, sort of aware of the story, I can tell. Wasn't it from the nuclear testing grounds in Nevada or somewhere? Yeah. That was back in the time where they, you know, they, they basically had the, you know, some swimming goggles that were made out of um, sunglasses and um, was enough to protect you from looking at a, a, a mushroom cloud um, oh going God. off on the horizon. Yeah. Um, you know, and the fact that it blew your hair back was just, you know, That's that fine. just needed, meant you needed to recomb. Yeah. Well, not that you were suddenly going to go away and, and develop some awful mutations yeah. and cancer and stuff, um, which subsequently happened it did, um it? yeah just hide behind a brick wall was was dead duck <laughs> duck and hope for the best but yeah, yeah. i mean there's other things as well i mean brando was also gaining weight i mean obviously we know he's famously became very obese when he's older yeah and he apparently went through i'm going by this uh brando biography that seems to be a fairly accurate he went through 52 pairs of trousers <laughs> what, just in this movie how can that be true? Surely not. <laughs> yeah. let's, let's say maybe not 52, but uh, a what, few. But what, because well, he needed different sizes? Because, he, because they kept growing, yeah, because he, <laughs> he did spend, you know, it, it, there's, there's tales of him spending, you know, a, a maximum of actual two hours being available for shooting each day. Oh, and no. uh, the rest of the time he was basically enjoying himself, which was uh, laying around and, and eating and sleeping. So um, that would you know, again, the way lockdown, yeah. we're all going through it at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> of course, so, he, didn't want to, he didn't want to get off the island. That's the thing. That, that's the another reason he was messing sorry. around with the script, ad libbing, because he wanted to stay there longer and uh, get paid for it. He's excellent. Quite canny. Oh, yeah. Of course, he is. Was he first choice for the role? Because Trevor Howard wasn't. It was Peter Finch was first choice, wasn't it? That's he? right. 
I'm not sure. I do know that Brando was offered Lawrence of Arabia, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah I, believe he, he, I believe he was. Um, from the beginning, though, the, he was mentioned as a possible. Yeah. Um, but whether that was their first choice or not, but certainly he was, he was in the frame from the beginning, even, mm. even if he wasn't the, the, the primary the choice. Person, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, all these productions, it wasn't all Brando's fault, but I think he did drive everyone mad. I mean, I've heard Trevor Howard talked about it, Richard Harris, just, just making life unbearable for people, the other actors. Mm. <laughs> I'm wondering if there was this bit of a division as well between the British crew and the cast mainly. And, it is mainly British crew, isn't it? When you look at it, the cast list here is is mainly British mm-hmm. famous faces, and then it's you know this this uppity, obstinate American, mm-hmm. young, you know, young star is is throwing a spanner in the works. Where I can imagine that again, Stephen will probably back me up on this one as well. Back in Britain, where everything's run by the unions, and you had to stop for tea breaks, <laughs> and and. And that, that was true, though, wasn't it? The British studio system—they—they they knocked it on the head dead on five o'clock, didn't they? And Hollywood productions were yeah. really frustrated by mm. things like. So you uh, can imagine um, that you know the British, like Trevor Howard, that was used to that sort of system, to have somebody disrupt it must have been really frustrating. Yeah, and the, the, you know the the actors had um, developed more pull um, as far as making sure that there wasn't. The repercussions on them from demands of of the the director or or studios or whatever that they weren't being put out and messed around, and then to have one of their own, as it were, as another actor being the one that was the cause of this, particularly you know with the the, the directors um, having more more sympathy towards them as well, I think that um, it, it did put that division in there. Probably, I mean, it was you've got to look at the cash, like you've said, and realise that. You know, ninety-five percent of of the cast were were either British or or Tahitians, yeah. and um, you know, there's this small compliment, and particularly as you know, leading that, being uh, Marlon Brando, who was really the, the the focal point of the rest of them um, suffering, really due to mm. um, his antics. The parallels again with um, some of his other films mm. later on. Apocalypse Now and stuff was where you know he end, end up delivering having to do scenes and do do lines and stuff whereby he was shooting them on the on his own and the the camera was on him and the actual other person wasn't in shot because they weren't they weren't willing to actually um, perform with him. Um, <laughs> but towards, you know, towards the end, really. As you guys know, sometimes difficult circumstances create you know great art. And I mean, Apocalypse Now basically didn't. And he was supposed to be in shape because this is obviously a, Kurtz was an ex special forces in the story. <laughs> Instead of he in, turns in up shadows, really, he turns out really fat <laughs> yeah. with a shaved head. But they turned him into a kind of Buddha figure. I mean, it was yeah. genius, yeah. you know. And the, the way it was lit, it, well, that's it. Created, he, he was you know, in the shadows, not, wasn't he? That's the thing. They 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 hid him, the you know. But that, that is that classic scene when he first appears out of the dark. Yeah, um, and that's, the bald head. Yeah, and that's what people remember. You know, the sweating and, uh, bald head. Stuck. That creativity, you know, it's the same as with Jaws, where you know the the animatronic didn't That's work properly, so they decided to not show it as much, and the the yeah. that um, limited amount of screen time actually made made it more intriguing and and um, more full of impact, um, really. But with regards to to this, I'm sure that that you know there is no no loss 
um, of love between um, Brando and, and some of the other actors. I mean, you, there are stories, which I'm sure Anthony's got more details of than I have, of not so much Trevor Howard, who I think would probably have been quite British stiff up a lip and just sort of quietly raised inside his own head about it, or maybe in a diary, rather than actually react to, to Brando. Mm-hmm. Um, even though you could see that there was possibly antagonism that was maybe useful for for the acting experience but certainly i think with richard harris there was there was more and i mean you know there are stories of where there was character confrontation between richard harris and um, malon brando and and richard harris basically just taking the piss out of brando in order to try and get him to to actually do the fight scene more authentically because he was you know so limp-wristed in the way he slapped him or, or whatever and um brando just not not getting it that he was <laughs> he was taking the piss out of him really so i think there was antagonism abound wherever brando went really apart from maybe to the tahitians who might have been the only people he was <laughs> he got he was, he was decent to i think there was a strange admiration going on maybe not at the time but i think years later um, when you hear richard harris talk about it, he doesn't really sound angry he, yeah i think there's a enough magic in brando that they could kind of forgive him almost i don't know maybe i'm biased (laughs) talking of um mr brando's love for tahiti and all things tahitian (laughs) this is the most fascinating backstory you know one of those great bits of hollywood movie trivia now Mm. he was married wasn't he at the time to Mavita Castaneda, Mavita, yeah, who yes. appeared in the 1935 version. She was she was a bit older than him, was she? Eight years older than him at I the time, so, yeah. yeah. Mm. And in the end, he runs off with Tarita, he's the, the, the leading Tahitian female lead in this movie, mm. who is many years his junior. That's she right. was 18 years younger. There we go. She was only 20 at the time. But isn't that weird yeah, that the link there that he's married? the female lead from 1935 and then leaves her for the female lead of the And I'm sure if he'd been anywhere near Tahiti in 1984, he would have tried to pull of the girl who played uh, he would have done. Mel Gibson's. Of course yeah. he would have done. Yeah, probably, because <laughs> you know, just keeps, keeps um, trading him in for a newer model, obviously. He liked getting married and having children, did Marlon, yeah. He didn't <laughs> seem to worry that it complicated his life, oh, basically. You read the backstory of like oh, not only the marriages but the, the the affairs that he had as well. Oh, um, Rita Marino and Katie Gerardo from High Noon as well. You know all of these people. He became obsessed with them um, mm. and pursued them to a certain way. You know he had a brief a fling with um, Marilyn Monroe, didn't he? At one yeah, point, he did, yeah, you know. yeah. Um, we focused a lot here on the backstory, the trivia, the turmoil as a movie is itself. What do we think? Is, mm. is it a good-looking movie? Is it a great movie? I th- I quite enjoy it as a as a. Can spectacle. you go first? Because I'm 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 too subjective. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll go, we'll, go go, we'll go to Stephen as, as as other <laughs> guest here today. I mean, forgetting the other two versions that we've been talking about and, and the backstory and that, mate. What's this like as a movie for you? It's it's a beautifully shot epic. Putting aside the the questionable characterizations and and the even more questionable um <laughs> facts of the actual story there are some some great performances in it i mean you know trevor howard probably um not fully able to be recognized due to the 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 sort of more strong performances and the and the characters having more to play with with regards to brando and harris um certainly does a, a as much as he can within the sort of cardboard 
put out villain of the piece that he's given to work with. It, I don't think he's given a rounded character to work with. Yeah, I think yeah. he is very much one-dimensional. Um, yeah. But I think he still teases what he can out of it just by um, being an incredible actor that, that he is. You know, Brando, I do feel miscast, to be honest. I don't uh, I don't think uh, he was the right person for the, for the job on this. Although, you know, if you were going to have the character being played intentionally as as they seem to portray him which is at odds with um the truth like we say then even putting aside the the actual accent the portraying the character as a, as a victim i suppose um and that allowed it to be acceptable that there was some of the the scenery chewing um that really went on a, a bit as this torn soul so it's taken that aspect where it's trying to put across the the different psychologies of the of the main characters, including Richard Harris, who you know, pretty much a, a scheming, angry young man from could be taken directly from a, a number of kitchen dramas. Really, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that the you know the, the trying to get more into the psychology of the of the characters um, as opposed to the earlier films um, is is one of the things that this film does better than the other the other two that we might reference that they're trying to to do that i don't necessarily say that they're they're accurate in it but certainly it's there's an attempt there rather than the earlier film being simply that it was a sadistic um captain and people rebelled against him or the the third film that it was um, a mixture of people and christian being in love with with a woman and the others just not wanting to go back to their shitty life in England. Yeah, this gets more, you know, attempts to portray a bit more the, the, the psychology of, of the lead characters and that, that mm-hmm. um, turmoil and, and conflict. I mean, so, I mean, you're putting a, a, aside the actual facts and if you're not, not treating this as being a, a portrayal of events, that it's actually a, a fiction um, then it's easier to, to watch it and I think in, enjoy it really. It is it's incredibly long but um, for, for me if you're able to put aside that then you you know that the, there are some some great scenes in it mm. some great dialogue quite tense in certain points I mean it mm. does unfortunately default a bit too much to whenever there's a, a lull in the story that's when the weather starts kicking up um, you know, so that you know, there's that side of things, but I think that that um, I can understand why um, Anthony can see this has been um, something that he took to, especially with the whole heroic sea, mm. and then the exoticism of the um, of the, the Polynesian islands and, and such like that. That is something that that sat in his psyche and, and caused him to go back as Absolutely. as a family. I can also understand other people who, who don't take to it at all, to be honest, because they feel it's too long and um, it, it's historically inaccurate and the, the characterisation is um, a bit too um, as characters rather than actually um, having the, the realism. Is it but, the... Sorry to interrupt, mate, because hmm. I, I want to get this in before I forget. It, it, is hmm. this the seafaring version of Zulu? But based on what you have just told me there, you know the yeah. characters that are completely wrong, the trouble production, mm. the the you know the, the the story has been not tweaked but massively you know exaggerated or you know focused mm. on the wrong things. Yeah, is, I wish that said era. This, beginning, we could have just said this is Zulu at sea. Yeah, and we could have just left it at a one minute review. <laughs> um. But it's also from what you said, you know, that Anthony as as 
had this movie as part of his life for the last 40 years almost. With regard to like our Real Britannia review, Stephen, this is a typical Rainy Bank Holiday Sunday movie, yeah. isn't it? You know, it's, it's one of those. Isn't it that mm. was always on, it's, like it's Zulu, to fill like the, the schedule Brits. as much as possible with the minimum amount of um, things listed in the radio times. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, plenty of ad breaks. You know, it's, it's particularly since it's portraying something outside the reality of, of what is the rain hitting your your living room window so you you've been taken on the high seas and to to an exotic island yeah um mm. and then there's adventure and peril and you know that kind of kind of thing going on so absolutely this just fits squarely within a, a, a rainy bank holiday yeah. um film from but it's from not boring either did you get bored at any point? I didn't. I didn't. But a lot yeah, of the critics w- were sort of mm-hmm. m- that. Their main complaint was some of the padding, and one particular one. I wrote this one down. It's from Esquire magazine. MGM spent some twenty million on the film. They could have saved most of it and had a better picture by sticking to the Bly Christian conflict and omitting the spectacular clutter, as they call it. But I don't think it was cluttered. I think. It was knowing that it's a three hour plus movie, right, guys? We know what these films are like. You get that whole overture. Did you did you watch a version that had the overture and the on track and, and it split in the middle with the intermission and all that lot, guys? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the prologue and the epilogue. Yeah, that, they we'll found the about, gardener on the island. Yeah, we'll talk about those as well because they yeah, weren't included, were they? So you know that up to that first, you're waiting for the intermission, and always in these movies, the first half it isn't actually a half; it's slightly longer. The first part of the movie is always sort of geared up to nearly two hours to give you about an hour, an hour and a quarter for the second half of the movie. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh. if you look at, you know, where they take the break in a lot of the movies, that first that first bit is about three quarters, well, not th- two-thirds, say, of the movie. So you know that for the first, you know, couple of hours of this, it's going to be set on board the ship. You know they're not going to hit Tahiti until that second half almost. Mm. And what I think hit home for me in that first half was that they did develop the tensions it was a slow burn and it was little minor well not minor but little minor parts of the story that you think okay the tensions building the tensions building look at the for example the whipping scene we're talking 1962 you would not have got blood in the 1935 version of anybody being whipped yeah yeah it's um, gruesome as well. Isn't it? That's what I mean. It was that was really effective. That the fact that yep, yeah, let's go for this. It's 1962. We can make this quite quite hard hitting. Even the bit where he casts one of his officers up into the mast overnight. Oh yeah, it's chilling. Yeah, and well done. It was actually chilling. <laughs> oh yeah. Shit, <laughs> I didn't even mean that. And he comes down, and and you know he can't boom boom. Yeah, and he can't move, and it's like. Keep keep your you know keep yourself together, man. You're in front. Come of on, yeah. Man. Keep yourself together, yeah, yeah. man. Keep your... And yeah. th- th- it was that that really sort of hit home for me. I mean, as a movie, we know you love this, Anthony. Personal thoughts aside, it is a it is a great movie, isn't it? I mean, it's not necessary just because it's a personal movie to yourself. You like it because of the fact that it's a, a fine looking film. It's a great spectacle mm. and it, it's great entertainment. And I can imagine going to the cinema and just absolutely loving this. Yeah, but. Um, I mean, there's this comedy as well. I mean, Brand- Brando's accent for me is basically almost a comedic device, whether it's intentional or not. But, you know, the bit with Trevor Howard. I mean, Trevor Howard doing the dance in Tahiti. Excellent. Uh, do you remember? Excellent. I mean, how fantastic is yeah. that? I mean, I think Brando, Brando does inject 
something into it. You know, it's comedy at the beginning, but I think he, I think one thing he always portrays well is um, angst and depression and things like that because that's who he was you know he was seeing a psychiatrist when he was making streetcar for god's sake <laughs> when he wasn't even 30 you know he yeah. knew about that and he brought a lot of that and i mean the last scene sorry to cut straight to the last scene mm. but i mean it's very moving you know when he when he died and he, he was lying on ice wasn't he to get that kind of chill to get the chill of death so to speak. that wasn't going to be part of the movie was it i think there was oh, a lot of there was a lot of rewrites and a lot of debate going backwards and forwards between the studio and Lewis Milestone that had taken over the directing and, and right. they didn't want it to end on his death scene that wasn't originally the ending I can't remember what the original ending was going to be but that ending is, is pretty effective really isn't it I mean it's very I mean, yeah and I think he I think he really shows the dignity I mean I think Fletcher Christian in reality was quite had quite a lot of integrity mm. Apparently, according to you know accounts of the crewmen, and I think Brando really got that out, you know, because in again the '84 version they turn on Christian, don't they as well? Yes. They, they almost do the same as they did to Bly. They start getting annoyed with Christian, and and there's they, they think about mutinying against him. <laughs> well, there's <laughs> hints of that. Twist. There's hints of that in here where he's, you know, yeah. down, down in Bly's cabin, all aloof, and you know, it, it, you could see that developing. But we're we're, we're well into a three-hour movie at this point. Mm-hmm. And you had to make the decision: do we do we take the story in that direction, or do we focus on the love story? Oh yes, it's 1962. It's an epic. It's cost us 20 million. We need we need to focus on the love story a bit as well. You know that. I don't feel it is. Yeah. I don't. And the criticisms of fluff in in there. I do. You know. I don't feel that that is um, that is justified really, because I think it it makes for a better story. Yes. Um, you could go into the psychological drama of, uh, you know, deeper, and if it was in different hands, but would it have justified the epic scale and the scenery shoots and all this kind of stuff, or would it have just been a two-man player based in a yeah. in a in a cabin? The the fluff, as it's called, was was made it a more entertaining film, even if it was less realistic. Certainly, um, is needed to be there, and also to to make more. More of the the scene setting for for the events, even if it wasn't the accurate, it certainly was was needed. And um, the poetic license, um, in order to do that, is just yeah. accepted that that's what. Obviously, I mean, this sits in the same realm as um, the likes of, you know, Pearl Harbor and Braveheart and, yeah. and such, where the the just designed to just um, tell the story rather than actually uh, tell. Uh, what actually happened so I think that the love story bit was it was intrinsically necessary for yeah. for this to be something that would be potentially sold because you've got to you got to like Scott said you've got to remember that people were viewing this by going to the cinema they weren't gonna exactly. get get a DVD and watch on some streaming service they were gonna go as a date to the cinema yes with you know uh, a boy and a girl usually. Um, got to keep her indoors times. happy, mate. And, yeah, that's right. And <laughs> so you, yeah, you, so you got to have it, and particularly since the you know the what was perceived to appeal to females at the time was was that it, it needed a love story or needed some singing and dancing in it, and that mm. so was necessary to to inject in really. Um, otherwise, you just you know you just make it. As, you know, a, a heavy drama like a war film that you know like excludes that audience um, which is not what they were wanting to do it was meant to be an, an mgm grand epic that was meant to be all things to all people really 
Yeah. I think the script is, I can't remember offhand, but we used to laugh at some of the lines. And I think there's a bit where, does he say to Blake, you remarkable pig? Something. I hope like you that. pray to whatever pig god you pray to. Or something <laughs> yeah. really silly. Like. And there are other things. I mean, I think it, it sacrificed that because the script, I mean, again, the thing I was listening to today, they, they talked about 30 rewrites. That might be a bit of an exaggeration, but, you know. Oh, I, I'm not surprised. And I bet a lot yeah. of it was written on the fly as well. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I could imagine that a lot of it was was written to accommodate, you know, Brando's availability or, <laughs> you know, his willingness to work on the day or whatever, you know. But yeah, it, was a, it was a bit busy some days, lying on, sitting on the beach, gazing at the sunset. <laughs> eating <know>. breadfruit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there was an outbreak. Of course, the actors on the film were also reenacting the mutineers, and that they got very friendly with the Tahitians, as we know. And there was yeah, an outbreak of gonorrhea, perhaps not surprisingly, across the entire island. Babies <laughs> born as well during the production. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. it's, it's one of those cases that the, the backstory is as fascinating as the movie because, you yeah. know, it's, it's a sweeping historical epic, and as we've just said, you know, the, there's dozens of examples of this sort of movie from around that sort of 10 year period from sort of like 56 up to sort of 66, 67, you know, that it is all widescreen and big spectacular movies. And it's, it's a great little period in Hollywood history. I think, you know, that do we see the likes of it anymore? And I know Stephen, you just mentioned say Pearl Harbor or, or Braveheart. We were getting these sort of epics for a while. I mean, have they, have they been replaced by bloody three hour Marvel movies now? Is that what we're looking at? Probably, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, you're not getting historical um, ones of, of this time frame, really. I mean, I, th- I think that this kind of thing has actually moved more to being, um, you know, a multi-part series on, on Netflix yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you've got the, the Catherine the Great on and all these kind of things yeah. that are done. And to be perfectly honest, the, the fact that this is a film that's based upon what was a trilogy of books, and although you can debate the the actual content of the books as far as the veracity of the facts if they actually went back and revisited to make sure it was a bit more factual they could probably quite easily turn this into quite a gritty multi-part no more well, multi-series to be honest they could probably do you know oh yeah um, imagine that you know mm, three series story, three yeah. series of, of of sort of um because you've got the you know the rather overlooked and and um, difficult to tell, I suppose, story of the actual Captain Blythe making it back to civilization. There's yeah. more to it than shown in the film, um, yeah. which is a more interesting story. And I think that 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 could, you know, I think if there was wasn't another attempt to do um, mutiny and the bounty as 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 a thing, then I think that it, it should perhaps be done in that context rather than trying to cram it all into a film because I think that that's now with the um, the desire to have a bit more truth in the retelling of, of history then I think that um, it would be better served by having that full full amount of time to do it in a multi-part series and certainly you could have have that done quite easily segment it up in, into the actual story of them getting to the island being the first series and then what happens in the months on the island has been the next bit and then the the aftermath being the, the next series after that really. I think they don't think there has been much in this context as far as 
historical epics being shown in the film and, and length of film now it, it, it is Marvel films and occasional long dramas about old cowboys maybe <laughs> yeah I mean we've had a couple that have well no I wouldn't even say it's come close I was going to say Dunkirk but I can't think of anything in recent years that we could compare this to anything immediately spring to mind you know very recently I don't think there is is there I've lost track badly with films yeah. the last sort of five to ten years, you know. I'm <laughs> going backwards to the old ones. but uh, I can't remember me thinking, looking down the cinema's listings and thinking, oh, that looks like a great, good old-fashioned epic. It's never going to be quite the same, because, of course, they're going to use CGI, you know, inevitably. But so I like that. Quite I, get the yeah, same thing. no, but I like the idea that somehow, you know, some of the technical limitations that we had previously could now be overcome a bit more so you get more of an idea of 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 what actually happened so mm. for example when you see some of these war films now whereas before it used to be stock footage of spitfires having a dogfight or you know there would be just one of the last flying spitfires flying what was it uh, hope and glory steven you know we saw actual yeah. real spitfires flying over but in this, we could see proper dogfights or whatever if it's a war film today from the cockpit and we could see the actual, you know, the real damage of things that are done. And even, you know, again, in, say it's a film set in wartime and there's a British street, you'd have one old car because that was all they could find, you know, sitting yeah. on the pavement. But with CGI, you can have cars and buses and things going past. So I'd like the idea that historical epics can now recreate a bit more faithfully what has gone on without those I'm on limitations the, i'm on the fence about that because as long as it doesn't get too smooth you know i mean mm. uh, a good example actually is titanic i mean i'm sure you've reviewed a night to remember i guess you haven't we you did on, on real britannia, real britannia. Mm. yeah i mean that i think night to remember i'd much prefer to to cameron's titanic but if you watch night to remember carefully it actually looks more like there's about 400 people on the ship you know, yeah. scrabbling to get on the lifeboats rather than 2,000. So obviously Titanic was better in that regard. But yeah, exactly. leaving that's aside what, the love like, story, yeah. they lost something as well, you know. Yeah, but that's what I like. I like the fact that you get more of a sense of, wow, there were 1,500 people on board that ship. Yeah. Um, Which mm. is right, you can do. You can you can portray it more. And I mean, they the, had the, the budget and the resources to Absolutely. with the third one of these uh, in the, the um, trilogy that we're talking about with Mel Gibson and, and that you've got the uh, Anthony Hopkins arriving at the Admiralty and, and you've, you've got the wide shot showing there have been plenty of horses and carriages and the, mm. the they've obviously done something to make, to to mask out um, some of the skyline and stuff that would have revealed um, more modern buildings yes. and stuff in the 80s yeah. and, and, and so mean, you can have that done the only thing that I noticed there was one of the the statue in the foreground that had its its weather beaten face just that was completely featureless like a, a Doctor uh-huh. Who um statue and, and I was thinking well, it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been um featureless at the time because yeah, true. so but they would have they would have absolutely added that on um with CGI to, to yeah. just that tweak. And I think Scott's got a, a good point there where you could feasibly do a, a um a passable job that would make it more believable with and the CGI, and, and mm. especially now that CGI has moved into a different realm, I feel where that when it's when it's done right, it's seamless. You don't notice it's CGI. Yeah. Whereas go back a couple of years, Titanic's and CGI was always example. that CGI. Titanic was the early days, wasn't it? That 
Yeah. Cameron's like, right, I've got this technology. I'm going to make the movie I always wanted to make. Yeah, if, yeah. if he even made that now, I like that version of Titanic. I'm sorry, but I do like it. But if that now, technically, it would look even more spectacular because it does look like a cartoon ship and some of the... Uh, you know the early shots yeah you've got to be really careful then because then you're making it into something glorious you know whereas titanic was just a horrible story at the end of the day yeah. it was just, a, just an enormously horrible yeah. tragedy but, but no, no I, t- I totally get it you know mm. the technology's there but you know um actually uh, <laughs> i just thought of a beatles reference yeah go on we've been waiting all morning yeah go on <laughs> no, it just came to me no i uh, just to give you an example the, the song day tripper um there's a point where the right speaker cuts out for yeah. like a second on yeah. the last verse due to the primitive technology and of course now with all these Beatles remixes they fix that and a lot of fans are kind of annoyed because they're so used to Daydripper of course listening yeah. to it and it cutting out so all I'm saying is you know I think there's a balance to be struck and, you know you shouldn't as long as it's not just computer geeks working on these stories yeah, well, yeah no, you I need a purist where, working on it as well you know yeah i think that's where you you've got a difference between doing something brand new um using the technology and resources available rather than going back and revisiting and digitally remastering and and putting cgi onto say this version of um mutant in the bounty if they went back and they they did some digital effects to make it that Brando's accent was actually English um, <laughs> or, or stuff like that, then I think that would, you know, absolutely, that would be sacrilege and you shouldn't do something like that. So there's Some there's bizarre a, version of auto-tuning, you mean? Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, you know, kind of, kind of dubbing in, uh, in a yeah. way, but making well, just it treat it, yeah. Yeah, just having done oh, they, by Stephen oh, Fry No, they could do, because <laughs> when, when they reinstated that missing scene from Spartacus, the snails and the oysters scene, um, they oh, had, yeah, they yeah, had yeah. the visuals for that, but not the soundtrack. Tony Curtis was still alive, so they got Tony Curtis to dub over the voice, if I remember rightly. But they got oh, Andy Hopkins right. to do um, Lawrence Olivier. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because he was a sort of a protege of Olivier, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, they, they got him to... I'm sure it was it was, it was Hopkins that did that. I think you're right, yeah. 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 So, Amazing. referring well, back... Olivier yeah. and Hopkins both had scenes together in, in the Bounty, the, the, the 80s. Oh, film. of course they did, yeah, yeah. Because he was Lord oh, of the Admiralty, wasn't he? Yeah, bloody hell, I forgot all about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they did indeed. There you go. He snuck Sir Larry in there. Oh, this, <laughs> that was the era when, you know, you, you put him in a film and you, you know you've got a movie of worth. That's what they were trying to do with dear old Larry. You know, it was like, yeah, we'll get Lawrence Olivier or Ralph Richardson, the grand old men of British theatre, get them in. Well, he had a kind of renaissance, didn't he? Because when they were filming Marathon Man in 76, they mm-hmm. didn't think Olivier was going to survive much longer. Yeah. He ended up, what did he do? Boys from Brazil. Boys from Brazil, fantastic movie. Yeah. 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 And as we've said previously about, you know, that he took a different turn in his career around about the time of of Bunny Lake, he's missing, where he decided to start, stop doing what is the classics and and start... Enjoying um, himself, I think. Enjoying himself and and applying his his classic talent to, to things that are modern... Um, which I think was was great that he decided to take that turn because the, what we then got was a, a number of films where oh, his presence oh, elevated right. it massively and and, well, to be and, honest, and brought, I think that set the road as well for the other people who yes. also were from the classical tradition, but seeing that they could actually um, step over that mark and, and do 
something modern. It goes on today. Selling out. I mean, what what he did with Andrew Wyke in Sleuth. I mean, and Michael Kane as well. Great Kane, film. I think, matched him, but oh, I mean, that's in my top ten Great easily. Film. Yeah, because again, he just he just gave it a hint of this horrible darkness <laughs> that mm. probably wasn't in the script. You know, yeah. that whole mm. thing about actors, you know, t- towards the twilight of their careers, just trying anything and everything, just you know, mm-hmm. to enjoy themselves, just to let loose a little. It goes on today. I mean, we, I think we spoke about this, Stephen, before. Someone like, um, and his name's completely gone. Gandalf. What's his name? Um, oh, uh, oh God! What's his name? <laughs> oh, all three of us had the blank at the same time. Yep. Here we go. One, two, three. That guy, yeah. Ian McKellen. Ian McKellen. Ian McKellen. Thank you, Ian oh, McKellen. Right. right. A few years ago, he decided round about sort of time in Lord of the Rings. Right, that's it. I've done. I've done Shakespeare. I've done everything. You know, I wanted. Mm. So. Didn't he sign up for things like pantomime and, and he was in Coronation, Coronation Street, Street well. as well, oh didn't my God, he? Really? And then you look at Patrick Stewart now doing a lot more sort of comedies and does Family Guy, uh, not Family Guy, American Dad, American Dad, yeah. and, that, and it's just like yeah, I've, I've proved I can act, I've done my bit now, <laughs> and they're just taking the gig that they're having the most fun with. Olivier That's done great. that. Trevor Howard did to a certain extent. When you look at the late 70s, the early 80s stuff, he was in things like the Sea Wolves and, you know, those mm. old British sort of military things, you know, that he would still play um, an, an older British officer, but they weren't serious British war movies as such. Mm. And yeah, fantastic. He was Henry and Rawlinson's End, a prime example. You know. um, yeah. Let's quickly go back to the last of Anthony's notes before we start <laughs> winding this up, because I think we've covered most things as we usually do. We, we we have your pointers from yourself at the beginning, and we sort of touch on them here, there, and everywhere throughout the throughout the conversation. Is mm. there anything you've got written down you want to just sort of finish off with, or just sort of touch upon before we wind this up, mate? Uh, a couple of things. Yeah, mm. I mean, just just to echo what Stephen said earlier about Bly. I mean, the the main criticism of this film from a realist realism perspective is just the Bly as a sort of cartoon villain mm-hmm. you know and I mean there's there's so many things that are factually inaccurate such as you know he he didn't flog people he, he his actual record of uh, flogging people was less than the average yes and, uh, mm. he was a far more reasonable person also what this film is missing which is is one of the great parts of the 84 film is is this amazing journey they took to East Timor mm. And it was, I think, 3,600 miles. Um, uh, Christian gave him a sextant, but they had no charts. Bly was known as a great navigator by everybody. I think they had 19 men in a ship made for 10. And yeah. they had they survived 45 days on five days full rations. I mean, it's just astonishing. But it's funny. Can you imagine Trevor Howard's Bly? If you saw him, like, starving and suffering, it just wouldn't work, would it? It just... I'm sure he could do it as an actor, but yeah, they they think? they they tweak this ever so slightly and hint at it. But they say, you know, the nearest island they're going to go to is Tafua or something like that. I think Probably, it is. Yeah, yeah. That's right. and he says, no, we'll avoid that, and we're going to go to the next one because you know it's four thousand, whatever it is. We're going to, but they actually went to Tafua, and yes, is that the one they had the cannibals on the island? And, oh, and again, an incredible scene. I mean, yeah, yes. The, the more I think about this, I think Anthony Hopkins is so good as Captain Bly, and you got Bernard Hill there. Yeah, uh, well, I love Bernard Hill. A Titanic yeah, reference as well there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they, they, um, the, that, I think that was more or less true. They, the, 
the natives seemed friendly and then they got more and more sort of hostile and they ended up like yeah, a couple of the mutineers got killed didn't they i think and they even tied yeah. a rope to the, the boat and they tried dragging it back to shore it's as, right. as you say if this was given the time and the production values over Stephen, say a 10-part miniseries or or even you know a three series serial it's a fascinating story you could go from start to finish and this would cover a good 10-year period from start to finish yeah. i mean blind Bly went back and did the breadfruit mission as well. Yes, they sent him back to the mission and he yeah. made it to the West Indies. Yeah, and then he became governor of, was it New South Wales or somewhere in Australia? You know, he's, Yeah, he's, and there was the Rum, rum Rebellion there. Yes, he was, right. It, well, in between that, he was, there was two mutinies that happened in English parts, basically. This is where my research comes, up. comes yeah. in. Yeah, uh, don't claim separate, you haven't been doing any research. Separate, <laughs> it's, it's, it's stuff I've done separately for, for, for other research. For, oh. um, for when I eventually do theoretically get my other podcast oh, going. Oh, that one. But um, <laughs> this uh, long heralded and, and, and <laughs> never realised. Um, but there was there was two mutinies that happened about um, seven or eight years after um, this that went, you know, several years after Bl- after Blythe had returned. And uh, the Spithead, which is the, the, the port, the area outside Portsmouth where um, all the ships were, were moored, basically, that, that area mm. um, of of the uh, English Channel and then the, the, the Nar um, in in London. But the Spithead one particularly was, was relevant to this because um, they did kick up a fuss about um, their, their objections to the discipline that was being uh, exerted on them as far as um, whippings and, and stuff like that, floggings, and... Yeah. Um, rations and and such and one of the captains that was removed uh, along with a, a, a vast number of others was Bly so that was he was the free mutinies that he's linked to was was the, the bounty and um, spit and then the rum rebellion when he was governor but he doesn't seem to have been directly implicated in spithead he just seemed to have been associated with it because of his reputation that uh. he'd carried on due yep. to the what due to the because there was a lot of um when he got back and okay, he was found not guilty by the um, the, the admiralty and and um, in some ways actually praised, but there were still those that had been the, the families, the particularly aristocratic families of those that he was trying to condemn had gone round blackening his name, so his reputation. Yeah. His reputation publicly um, rather than professionally was blackened, so he got removed as part of this rebellion in Spithead several years after he'd, he'd returned from doing the breadfruit run again. Um, and then he was, in, you know, part of, he was the subject of a rebellion in New South Wales as a governor, like you say, but that was <laughs> on the, on the, the cursory glance of it is that he was, you know, he was stopping um, rum being imported and therefore that's what caused the, the rebellion. But in actual fact, what he was doing was stopping the corruption whereby, um, mm. This rum was coming in, and and the vast majority of it was was being siphoned off and sold, um, exactly. Yeah. So privately, so he was he kind of has suffered his reputation has suffered on three levels of being damned for being somebody he wasn't, and um, you know it could possibly even be that the the mutiny bounty um, triple series on Netflix doesn't have to be about <laughs> the mutiny bounty. It's actually a biopic of of, of Bly, of, um, Bly because he was. A self-made man um, yeah. who was oh. trying to be uh, a captain despite 
other people getting awarded captaincies just because they happened to be from an aristocratic family but they didn't have his skills yeah. and he, he struggled for a long time to actually be made a captain even in this he wasn't he was captain of the ship but he didn't have the rank of captain that's it um well he eventually that, that reached the thing. rank of vice admiral so you know, eventually yeah eventually mm. before he died and was in the battle of copenhagen amongst other things so you know his abilities as a as a seafaring you know commander aren't in doubt you know it's just mm. the way that it's portrayed and cook shows him for for mm. his um second and, and i think third yeah. um journeys because he recognized him as being a, a, you know, the best navigator to have fascinating story that you know as we say mm. that the three versions of the bounty mutiny on the bounty that we sort of be discussing today they all take a different view they all and, and if you were to combine all three you still wouldn't get the full story yeah yeah he was younger i think Bly was 33 when the when the voyage and i'm pretty sure all three actors would have been quite a bit older yeah, how old, in all, how old was Trevor Howard? Mm. It must have been fifty, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think in all of the films, the the actors were older. I think yeah. the closest you get is Mel Gibson in the third one, but the rest of them, yeah. they were all substantially older than they actually um, should have been. Um, yeah, because I think Christian was twenty three when they sailed, mm-hmm. and and Bly was thirty three. Yeah, go. yeah. Um, okay. Can I? Mm. Can I just read one thing? This is. Because I did make a load of notes about the real story. Just the end of it, that's all. Yeah. Uh, this is probable events, because uh, we're not sure exactly what happened. But the probable events at Pitcairn saw Christian and four other mutineers murdered by Tahitian men in September 1793. The Tahitians themselves being murdered by surviving mutineers or the wives of murdered mutineers. <laughs> Christian fathered a son called Thursday October Christian. Uh, you probably know there's a chef called Glyn Christian as yes, well. Uh, who, who, yeah, relative, to be. Yes. Quintal and McCoy constructed a still making liquor and drinking a lot. 1798, McCoy committed suicide. Quintal was killed by Adams and Young. Young died of asthma and Adams remained. And um, as we said earlier on the DVD, there's this prologue and epilogue where they do that kind of device where you see someone who basically tells the film as a story and then yeah. you return to them at the end and they yeah. made it the gardener, didn't they? Richard, the guy Richard was in. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it was in Sound of Music, yeah. Mm. But, um, um, there were rumours going on for mm. years and years that his murder was fake, though, Christian's murder. Did you, did yeah, you know? he returned yeah. to, to England, yeah. Mm. Um, how he would have done that was difficult. I mean, the first contact that they the Pitcairns had was was quite a while later, about 18 years later, and, and that was, you know story then was um pieced together and there was as you say there was only one survivor which i think was adams and that's right the the rest were either several tahitian women and um and the children basically and that was that was it um with regards to um survivors on the island and Mm -hmm. and we know that um about a decade ago there was uh, some very unsettling news about how um, the Pitcairn Islands culture had, had developed, yes. um, yeah. which you know didn't didn't you know sort of brought back some discussions about the mutiny in the bounty. And I was surprised really that around that time that there wasn't any plan. You know, nothing came of of um, them retelling the story as well, because I would have thought that mm. the references might have provided ammunition for them to decide to to have another go at telling the story. Um, you know, sort of how the Pitcairn Islands ended up there in the first place. It's because of mutiny. So let's tell the story of the mutiny. But yeah, it was, a, I believe, a, a whaling ship from the United States that discovered them like 18 years later and 
yeah, the information that had been put together. And then there was, you know, there's also the story of those that decided to go back to Tahiti and, and got picked up. And then the the commander that had, was on the Pandora, which wasn't Bly, um, <laughs> yeah. um, then basically the he was a cruel captain. And some of the um, prisoners died because the ship crashed and they he refused to let them out of, of where they were locked up. So they basically drowned because they were still locked and imprisoned. Right, um, yeah. So there's, you know, there's there is a lot more to it. Just uh, sort of after the um, the actual mutiny happened, that isn't portrayed in the yeah. films, and obviously it was long enough as it was without getting too much into that. Which is why I think there there is more to it if somebody decided to invest. Listen, um, I, I in, think the three of us should get it. together and write this script. You know, this. I think, yeah, I think we, yeah, we well, already have it. need to do the research. I I'll already have it. Uh, We'd have to be a bit more accurate. Do you guys, like, as as you're aware, the, the three versions that we've been talking about featured, you know, the leading Hollywood heartthrob at the time, you know, Mel Gibson, Marlon Brando, Clark Gable, right? Have you read Captain Bly's actual description of Fletcher Christian, what he actually looked like? No. <laughs> right. There's no portrait or exact drawing of what Christian looks like. There are a few drawings out there, like a representation of him. But in Bly's own words, right, he described him as five foot nine inches high, blackish or very dark complexion, hair, blackish or very dark brown, make strong, a star tattooed on his left breast and tattooed on his backside. His knees stand out a little and he may be called little bow-legged. He is subject to violent perspiration, particularly in his hand, so that he soils anything he handles. <laughs> so, what was the? <laughs> so, good luck with the casting of that one, chaps. When we actually get this stuff, instead you get a leprechaun, a <laughs> leprechaun, the superhero. Yeah. What was their um, real relationship? Because in in the the later film with Hopkins and Gibson, they're very chummy. Obviously, in the version we're talking about. The, the real like relationship it. was that they did actually know each other and had yeah, sailed yeah, to each other previously. Yeah. And, Only about um, a year, yeah. And mm. Fletcher Christian was, you know, was friends with the, the his family and, and his, right. his, had read, read stories, you know, bedtime stories to his children and all sorts of things. So right. they were um, friendly and, and, you know, Bly specifically sought out um, Christian to, to be on the, the ship. So there was already a, a friendship there. Um, which I think is why, in the, if I remember correctly, the third, the Mel Gibson one, um, he does appeal to to him based upon yeah, the friendship does. and yeah. and his his children, his family. Yeah. Um, yeah so but- yes, that that's another inaccuracy whereby, you know, that that relationship um, existed, whereas it was portrayed as being that they were complete strangers and at odds from the beginning, which is, yeah, again, is dramatic license, but not accurate it's more simple i suppose isn't it it's taking the simple route of yeah you know two total opposites it makes that whole story of the conflict you know more believable in that short space of time that they've got to tell the story i suppose that's it yeah anything else anybody would like to add before we wind up here chaps no that's it i mean i think it's very very entertaining i do recommend that podcast history by hollywood it's they take you through the real story of something and then take you through how Hollywood has treated it. And in this case, they go, they talk about all three films, which is how you get a three in one deal. But uh, I think it's very entertaining. Um, I think, you know, if you've got some sort of surround sound or something, it's definitely, uh, you know. Oh, watch it on a big screen TV or whatever. Yeah. yeah definitely get the full, get the full effect. Definitely get the full effect. 
Stephen, is it top of the three for you, or is it sort of middling, or or even the bottom? Where where would you rank this amongst I, the three? I right? think it entirely depends upon what you're wanting from the film. Um, mm-hmm. If you're wanting something that that is telling you more accurate with regards to the the history, yeah, then you need to go for the the most recent one in the mm-hmm. 80s. But if you're going for something that attempts to have a bit more of a, an epic appearance with the, the cinematography and um, the the scope of what it's trying to cover, as well as trying to include the the, the psychodrama of the individuals then it's this one you need to go for and if you're just wanting to go for something that's a bit more you know a a swashbuckling adventure Mm -hmm. then you go for the first one so this one definitely has its place and i don't think it it, i don't think the um there's bits there's bits that the other ones do better than this but there's also some bits that this does better than the others so um i think it has its it has its place and if that's what you're wanting from it then absolutely you seek it out and as you say a big screen to be able to take in the the full technical of, of the Tahitian mm-hmm. um islands and 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 the women that he um you know certainly uh, is is a spectacle if nothing else you will get a, a, a chuckle out of the the accent of um <laughs> Marlon Brando which is is on par with Dick Van Dyke um at least he tried and, Clark Gable and, didn't. and yeah, at least he tried. Yeah, but I, I'm reminded of it uh, when I was uh, watching it again. I was reminded of of Robert Downey Jr. when he was doing Sherlock Holmes. That that yeah. British accent there as well. It was yeah. just um, oh, what's the what's the one in Chaplin, the um, Chaplin? But Ocean's Ocean's oh, Eleven. Oh, Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle, um, oh, yeah. who's who's talking Cockney, but like yeah. not because you've got you know need, we're needing subtitles for him never mind oh. um, anybody else so i think this is a film that i can understand where where anthony's coming from with regards to his fondness for it yeah. um it's not for everybody because of the length and because of the, the subject matter check out brian james in tango and cash as well for a really dodgy english accent oh yes <laughs> but americans tend to um tend to sound like a sort of cockney spiv from the 1950s when they do yeah <laughs> they tried to do english accents so I think I appreciated the fact that Marlon went for something else, you know, not a sort <laughs> was, of gore blimey governor. It was kind of unique. I'll give him that. It, it was unique. Yeah, and, and then yeah, it's I that have, it, a, a Cockney spiv wouldn't have worked for somebody who was meant to be um, uh, uh, an aristocrat from from yeah, uh, exactly, uh, yeah. sort of yeah. Newcastle, where. Yeah, but you could have played uh, Christian as a sort of working class hero, couldn't you? As well, that would have been another well, way you could have gone with it. I was say, you know. despite all our criticisms, you know, he's, he's a great film at the end of the day, this movie. And I'm going to spring this on you because I haven't thought about this myself, but mm. we'd do a remake or we'd do a Netflix series or whatever, as we say. I think the series thing is a great idea. I don't yeah. think it necessarily needs another film, I but, think. But bearing that in mind, right, and, and what we've said that Christian was 23 and Bly was 33, and who would we cast today? Ah, well, Stephen's a classic film jerks veteran, so uh, I think oh, we yeah, cross that was the feature of them, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've sprung yeah, this on you. I haven't even in. thought about it myself, but, you know, the ages were all completely wrong in all three versions that we've seen. Yeah, yeah. It would be difficult, I think, to find a 23-year-old, I don't know, that would appeal to the audiences as well as, you know, would a 33-year-old to today's audiences convey that authority that Captain Bly had? Do we need somebody of... Anthony Hopkins or Trevor Howard standing to make this more acceptable. 
I think you, you, yeah. you're right pinpointing there that you would... The, the problem is with casting people age-wise with, um, with history mm. is that you've got to remember that, uh, you know, in a number of cases, people going back into history hundreds of years, um, life expectancy and, and such like was, mm. was shorter, so people aged quicker anyway. So people who, in our terms now, I mean, you can just say in, in our own generations of things that, you know, what was... When we were um, children, uh, me and Scott, when we were children that were pensioners, yeah. um, were were doddery old women. Whereas now, <laughs> you know, people who are sixty, they're, they're people who are, who are you know still going to to gigs and and yeah, jogging yeah. and doing all yeah. sorts of things. So you, you, so you've got to you, you've got to yeah, well done, Scott. But um, <laughs> you've got to um, you've got to you, so you, you, I think you could get away with having somebody. Um, ten years older in both respects, um, yeah. to be able to fulfil the role because they would fulfil the um, the criteria of how people aged at the time. I mean, you know, you, one of the um, officers on the in True to Life on the the, the boat was um, a fifteen year old who was you know, a young lad who was an officer. Yeah, um, aristocratic, obviously, but I mean mm. that you know that you can have the movement of maybe ten years as far as age-wise to to allow people to appreciate the, the uh, maturity of people being different back in those times. But who you would cast is a is is a bit of a minefield because how yeah. you find the people who were have the right temperament um, and uh, CV as far as what what characters mm. they can put across. And if you're going to put something out there that does have the the action as well as the psychodrama, you're going to have to get some some people who are quite good all round um, actors rather than you know just putting um, the, the rock in there. I was going to say the danger would be any of any of the Marvel cast. It would be Captain America <laughs> or you know. Uh, well, no, I'd say we need to be British people. You know, we're, 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 who's the so. guy? Who's the guy who's played James Hunt in Rush? Was he Thor as well? Yeah, that's what I mean. It would be somebody from that ilk, wouldn't it? it He's would... Australian, isn't he? What's yeah, his name? He, oh, God. There was Chris Evans is Captain America, and it's him, isn't it? Um, uh, oh, oh, Hemsworth, isn't it? Chris, Chris Hemsworth. Hemsworth. That's yeah, it. yeah. You know, that would be the danger. Like that would be the danger that would happen. We would get a muscle-bound, all-action hero. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, we got it with you know Clark Cable and, and Mel Gibson as such that they were at the time the leading heartthrob. So, yeah. do we want an accurate representation? I think we do. I think we need to make it accurate if we're going to get this remade, guys. I mean, they'd be wanting to try and put they'd be wanting to put the likes of Tom Hardy in there somewhere, they wouldn't there? And, and so that would be the choice. Would be, that would be it. Would, would, Tom Hardy is bligh. Tom Hardy is bligh. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that would work better than having him as Christian. Certainly. <laughs> oh, we're all okay. Uh, I've never seen Master and Commander. Is that any good? Because uh, Russell Crowe seemed to fit the bill, but I guess he's a bit old a bit now. Older now. Wasn't, wasn't yeah. there a link between that and the the um, the bounty in the eighties that they, didn't they use some of the didn't they use the, some of the ships or whatever oh, that they that they something. featured in one film was actually reused in. Master and Commander. I think that, I, don't know. I think I read that somewhere that there was there was there was a link there. But yeah, as far as recasting, um, difficult. You know, it, it's it's a bit of a minefield. But yeah. you know, you'd be, I think you'd have to pick British people um, to play the the British parts at least, not our British people playing the Tahitians because that's <laughs> uh, obviously daft. But um, 
you know, and they could do a full a full examination if they did that of of where where people's different motivations lay, and rather than just have it as a as that there was a one villain of the piece and that was Catsman Bly because yeah. you know from from my from from my view, I mean the Tahitian King was uh, the biggest villain in all of this really, um, <laughs> just because of the fact that you know he was making pronouncements about as far as when the the mutineers turned up at the island and said, you know, we want to take um, we want to take you know several men with us to 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 sail the boat and he basically just said yeah i'll, I'll give you some men I thought, well don't they have a choice in that? <laughs> you're gonna send them send them off for, you know take them away from their families and send them off and that's it they're just done you know so um you know maybe the the worst dictator in the entire thing was the tahitian king but um <laughs> yeah it's it there's a there's a multitude of different aspects that could be better examined in a in with more time and and now with there being a better view of history to be able to yeah. um, not just have such a simplistic view as well. Yeah. So um, and hopefully somebody from Netflix is listening to this or Amazon <laughs> and uh, will put that, that out for us. But, there you go. You know, and give us a credit as well. We've done all the hard the work for you, lads. It's there. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. and as long as they don't fall down that trap of when we first tried to record this episode a few days ago and, and you know technical difficulties and you know noise at Stephen's end of people breaking into his house and stuff um, I reminded you guys of the very short lived version of this the musical version starring oh, Dave, yeah. David Essex and Sunita <laughs> and this, yes. this, this long forgotten West End production um, and you know it, <laughs> if you can cast David Essex as Fletcher Christian and Sunita as the love interest, anything is possible, chaps. That's all I'll say. Well, we'll so. look forward to the to the uh, Netflix series starring Danny Dyer then. <laughs> Danny Dyer and Miley Cyrus. Yeah, I can't wait. It'll be brilliant. Let's leave it at that. That's been the stinking pause. We'll be back. The three of us, hopefully, very soon. We've got a lot more episodes lined up with other guest presenters. So, take care, guys. See you both very soon. Thanks a lot. See you later. Take care. The management of this theater suggests that for the greater entertainment of your friends who have not yet seen the picture, you will not divulge to anyone the secret of the ending. Jamboree is worse than two cats on a fence. You dudes get lost now, here. Good night, ladies. Good night, for cash was dire, and producer Aaron Rosenberg knew it. He had a question for Marlon. What about a remake of the MGM classic Mutiny on the Bounty, with Brando in the role of Fletcher Christian? At first, Marlon was unenthusiastic. He didn't believe a simple shot-for-shot restatement of the old Clark Gable, Charles Lawton epic would suffice for the modern viewer. However, his curiosity had been aroused. He got hold of the Charles Nordoff, James Norman Hall historical novel, 
from which the movie had been adapted. It turned out to be part one of a trilogy. The first book concerned the actual revolt against the tyrannical Captain Bly. The second, neglected volume, Men Against the Sea, followed Bly's astonishing survival in a small boat with a bunch of loyal crewmen and short rations. The third, Pitcairn's Island, told of the mutineers in later years, how some enjoyed their freedom, how others were hunted down, brought back to England, and hanged, how the remaining seamen turned against one another, resulting in recrimination and murder. The latter portions of the story fascinated Marlin. He agreed to do the film with this proviso. I want to investigate what happened to the sailors after the mutiny. Why did they go to Pitcairn Island and, within two years, kill each other off? What is there in human nature that makes men violent, even in an island paradise? That's what would interest me. The demand seemed reasonable enough to Rosenberg. He assigned novelist Eric Ambler to do a scenario incorporating all three books, and persuaded MCA that this would be the most remarkable Brando film to date. Surely it would be the most remunerative. Playing the part of Fletcher Christian, the star would earn a flat fee of $500,000, plus 10% of the gross, plus $5,000 a day for every day the film went past its six-month schedule, practically a guarantee given the complexities of production, plus $10,000 a week to cover overtime expenses. Additional bait was dangled. Most of the movie would be shot on location in Tahiti, the Nirvana Marlin had visualized when still a miserable cadet. He succumbed. Privately, Brando was not so pleased with the man assigned to steer this bounty, Sir Carol Reed. It was hard to believe the studio's claim that it was aiming for another Ben-Hur, MGM's mega-hit of 1959. Sir Carol's specialty was the intimate psychological drama, not the widescreen blockbuster. The Fallen Idol, for example, explored the mind and loyalties of a boy who witnesses a killing. The Third Man, Graham Greene's atmospheric thriller, was basically the story of two men, one honorable and drunk, the other amoral and romantic, who compete for the attention of a woman in depleted post-war Vienna. A meeting was arranged between director and star. It was not a success. Instead of discussing the material at hand, Marlin went on about the California rapist Carl Chessman who had been sentenced to death. When the discussion finally got around to Bounty, Reed found the actor's suggestions useless. Brando had only the most rudimentary knowledge of Tahiti, derived mainly through old photographs and the paintings of Gauguin. Brando's request for historical accuracy was dismissed out of hand. To defuse the conflict, Rosenberg stepped in, reminding his star that no one in the audience would know or care about what British sailors or Tahitian natives wore in 1789. Authenticity was fine for documentaries, but the tale of Bly versus crew was cluttered with salts and officers. It needed all the sex and spectacle it could get. Marlin was anxious to get to the Society Islands. He accepted the producer's argument. The events of the first few weeks could have come from an Evelyn Waugh farce. A group of allegedly glamorous Tahitian women, Vahines in their native language, had been hired on the spot. Their come-hither looks turned out to be unusable, because their teeth were marred by brown stains and streaks, the result of chewing beetle nuts. To cover these flaws, they were required to wear temporary dentures. Some five thousand were flown in from the United States. The Vahines were delighted took the teeth caps and vanished to admire themselves in their home mirrors. 
They went missing for days. An MGM official came up with the solution. Extras were required to pick up their dentures in the morning and hand them in at the end of the day. The sand was equally disappointing. It was black, powdered lava, disappointing to the eye and ugly to the camera. Tons of white sand had to be trucked in from a faraway beach. Nevertheless, there were compensations. The Vahinis, as well as some Polynesian youths, were compliant to the point of passivity. A wink, a nod, and they were in bed with the flirter. Hetero or homosexual, it didn't matter. There were no obligations beyond the moment of pleasure. This was more like it. Marlon relaxed in an atmosphere of total indulgence, auditioning local women for the role of Fletcher Christian's South Sea in Amorata. He settled on a lush, empty-headed nineteen-year-old hotel worker named Tarita. This was the beginning of many disasters for the film. Early on, Tarita had trouble remembering her lines, and her scenes were repeated day after day until she got them right, at a cost to MGM of at least fifty thousand dollars per diem. Naturally, she bedded down with Marlin, but so did other locals. In this, he was no different from other members of the cast and crew, who slept around more or less at will. Many, including Marlin, contracted gonorrhea, and an expensive California physician had to be flown in with serum and antibiotics. Pregnancies forced some young extras to leave. They were replaced by even less talented ladies. A forty-something technician fell for a voluptuous lass and, alongside her parents, announced their engagement, even though he had been married for more than ten years. Friends eventually persuaded him to give up the fantasy, but it was a hard sell. Complications continued. While preliminaries got underway, the weather turned foul. Seventeen inches of rain fell one day, and storms were ceaseless. Then there was the problem of the script. Ambler's plot and dialogue were found wanting in character development, and new men were brought in for repair work. First, Borden Chase, best known for westerns, doctored the dialogue and plot. Then Charles Lederer, who had earned his first screen credit in 1931, came in to fix the fixes. And then there was the problem of Marlin himself. He adored Tahiti, and did everything he could to delay a return to California. On the very first day of shooting, he told the director, I'm sorry to see this day come. It means one day sooner that we'll be going back to the States. Consciously and unconsciously, he made life difficult for his fellow performers, insisting on retakes for nearly every scene. Richard Harris, a hard drinker but a dead serious actor, was thrown by Brando's improvisatory technique. So was Trevor Howard. As the martinet Captain Bly, he had many scenes with the star and abhorred Marlon's unpredictability. You never know where you are, he fumed. Brando could drive a saint to hell in a dog sled. Squabbles, rewrites, and inclement weather forced more postponements. Having indulged Marlin well past the point of fiscal sanity, MGM finally put on the brakes. Because it was impossible to fire the star, the director took the fall. As a crowd of paparazzi and columnists descended, Studio Flax blandly asserted that Sir Carol Reed had decided to move on to other assignments, and that MGM was delighted to welcome Lewis Milestone as the HMS Bounty's new skipper. Recalling the pacifist spirit of All Quiet, Marlin was deeply respectful when they conferred about the picture. Milestone rolled up his sleeves and prepared to take over. 
he would soon regret his decision. The bounty script was divided into thirds. The mutiny, the life on the island, and the fallout and fatal internecine strife among mutineers. These sections were written by different men at different times, and the parts rarely meshed. Marlin continued to be troubled by the personality of Fletcher Christian. Before him loomed the image of Gable strutting in the 1935 film. Clark was marvelous in a lot of movies, Marlin maintained, but in Mutiny he was just another fellow in a funny hat. To put some distance between the Fletchers, he proceeded to make his mutineer a high-minded, overprivileged fop. That put the wardrobe department in a delicate situation. Marlin's weight fluctuated by the week. At times his belly bulged over his pants. He went through fifty-two pairs, and he insisted on looking taller than his natural height by wearing awkward lifts in his shoes. All along, Marlin's private life echoed the film production's chaos.